0: We'd love to have you there. Um, In the meanwhile, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. This is the final message, not the final message in Revelation. Don't get your hopes up. There's about, I don't know, 25 more. Um, (laughs) But this is the final message that Jesus is specifically addressing to churches as the setup for the whole rest of the letter of Revelation. So Revelation, if you think about it, it's not just a book of the Bible. It's actually a letter written to the church. It's a letter meant to reveal who Jesus is to the whole church. And so he is specifically addressing different issues, different areas of concern in in specific local churches. And so this is the seventh, the final one of the local churches. And each of these churches represents different aspects— things that were really going on in that church, but they represent different aspects of things that the church needs to address. And so today is no different, although things in this message to the church in Laodicea are not indicative widespread of our church. There are always things that Jesus wants us to hear, because that's what he says, is let you, let the, who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that's our prayer today. So, Let's stand and we'll read the scripture. And as I'm reading this, let's just receive from God and say, Lord, would you help me here? Okay? So let's listen to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and we are desperate for you. God, we are in need of you to make us alive, to be able to hear from you to begin with. God, as Christians, Lord, we, as those who placed our faith in you, we need you to enable us to see those areas where we need to respond to you. God, open up our ears. May we hear you. May we see you. May we behold you. Lord, Lord. I pray that you reveal our hearts, our minds, Lord, not for morbid introspection, but God, so that you might cleanse us and make us more like Jesus. God, we want to hear what the Spirit is saying, so Lord, we ask you to do that. God, I ask that you would work in my own heart, my own mind, mightily. God, I pray that you would use my words and you would speak through me. Father, I pray for each and every person here that you would awaken us, that we would not be dull, that we would hear from you. And God, enable us to apply your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there is a danger of a city that's doing really well. There's dangers that can occur when a city is doing great and the culture around is very optimistic and doing well. They don't see their needs to improve. If a city thinks, hey, we're great, we're doing fine, and all these wonderful areas, then there's a tendency to overlook areas of need of improvement. And there's a tendency to become self-satisfied, self-sufficient, and self-righteous as a city. And that, the same is true for the church. Now, that isn't just something for that day, back 2,000 years ago. You see, actually our area is doing really well. You know, the, the Greenville area, it's, it's been in the top 10 lists of so many different places over the last 10 years or so. In, in, in the 40s, they had a boom in the economy in this area. In the early 60s, it started to wane. In the late 60s and 70s, a guy named Max Heller was the mayor, and he revitalized downtown and brought some things like Hughes Library and an art museum and other things. And since then, Greenville's kind of been on a slow but steady upswing and has enjoyed prosperity. According to the Greenville News, Greenville's made the top 10 best list countless times. Uh, there's just a sampling. Southern Living... Poll of South's best cities, number five of the South's best cities. It's also named a foodie paradise. Forbes magazine was named, we named Greenville as America's best downtown, number 18 of all of America's best downtowns. The New York Times named it as one of the 52 places to go, number 12 in that list. The Wall Street Journal said it's the 10 buzzy, unpredictable travel destinations. Greenville's become down, Dreamtown USA. Now, if you're from here, you might think, like, what in the world? Right? But it's true. It's really true. National Geographic, you know, all these different places. These aren't, these aren't places without opinions. These aren't magazines that don't have opinions. National Geographic travel, 29 cities on the rise, and Greenville is named, this. I thought this was funny, one of the meatiest, meatiest for its butchers and steakhouses. I didn't know that. Um, travel and leisure, named one of America's most underrated cities, number 13 in the top U.S. News and Travel named it the best place to visit in all the Carolinas, number five on, the, on the, that list, uh, Money Magazine, 12 great places to go and how to do them on a budget, Nast Traveler just named the number three small city in the U.S. Reader's Choice Awards, Tripadvisor number nine on U.S. destinations, MSN Travel, most romantic weekend getaway, who would have figured, <laughs> number 10 on the list in the U.S., American Planning Association, one of the great places in America, CNBC, number nine and 25 best cities in the U.S. for people under 35. Just this month, Greenville was ranked 10th best place to live in the whole United States by livability.com. They surveyed 1,000 cities with a population between 20,000 and 1 million We live in a great area, and that's good, right? We should be proud of the area we live in. We should love that God has put us here, and we should enjoy all the goodness of it. But there is a danger of living in a place that's comfortable, living in a place that's easier, where the cost of living is good, where there's relative wealth and and low poverty rates generally. The danger is it's easy to become complacent in an area, an environment like that, and it's easy to become apathetic and just comfortable, blind to weaknesses, and that's what happened in this letter, this message that Jesus is addressing to Laodicea. He's addressing a very similar as far as they were on all the top ten lists of, of Asia Minor. And that's no joke. In, in history, you can read all the different ways that Laodicea was a happening city. It was, it was um, I think I have a picture of it here, where it was at. Um, it's, it's right in the Lycus Valley, and it's in, in this little passage that, that provides passage from the Middle East over, across to Turkey, so you can take a ship over to Greece and then go to Rome. And so it was a key crossroads city. And so because of that, it had become a place with a lot of trade. It, it also had become a financial city, a financial center, really. They were banking. They had booming agriculture. Textile industry was doing well. They had, they had sheep in the area that were renowned for their black wool. And I've never seen that before, but it's really interesting to read about how they were like the headquarters for the Gucci of their day, they, they produced this black wool that was very desirable. In fact, they had a, a very famous medical school in town, and there was the, a world-famous at the time ophthalmologist. Now, I don't know they were called ophthalmologists back then, but a world-famous eye physician was in Laodicea, and they had developed this salve that was known throughout the, the Roman Empire as being able to heal eye ailments. So they were known for their agriculture, for their wealth, for their clothing, for their ability to heal eyesight. The town was a little proud. They minted their own coins. There was a major earthquake prior to this letter, probably about 20 years or so, and when the earthquake happened, Rome said, hey, you know what we can do? We can help provide aid to rebuild all the cities in Asia Minor because we know you guys were hard hit. And Laodicea said, no thanks, we're good. They were so well off, they were like, no, no, we got it. We don't want any Roman influence. We're good ourselves. We're we're fine. We're doing just fine, thanks. And they were. <clears throat> the only problem is they had a little problem with some water in Laodicea, and so they didn't have any fresh water source there. They had the Lycus River ran close by, but it dried up all summer long. And in the wintertime, it was so turbid that it had all kinds of noxious things in it, and you couldn't drink it. And so they were like, fine, we'll say it. Oh, so here you go. Here's the map. So right there in the little valley here, you see those little brown areas there? Those are big mountains. And I say big, like 8,000 feet high mountains. So they were one of the only places you could come through this river valley, and you would pass through. So all the trade from the Middle East and Rome kind of went through that area. They were very wealthy. They built an aqueduct. Rome said, hey, you know, we'll help you solve your water problems. They're like, no, we got this. And so they built their own aqueduct, one of the very few cities to do that. And they carried water from uh, springs like six miles away, and they were, they were okay, I guess. A little smelly, but they were all right. And the church, though, had acclimated to that whole culture. They had, they had become subtly entranced with the idea of, hey, we're good. The church was probably wealthy. The church was doing okay. They were in that environment. They had probably all those big givers. They, their numbers were good, and everything was just fine. We don't read anything about that was dramatically wrong with this church. Other churches we read about in the Messages to Revelation, and they had lots of big issues. We had some churches that were heretical. They were allowing heretical teaching in the church. That's a big deal, right? Other churches were allowing all kinds of sexual immorality in their midst. That's a big deal. And Jesus corrects those churches, and except for the church last week, every other church, five out of the six, he commends something. And even the one we... we Referenced last week, he came, he said, "You know what? You still have a few people there who are hanging in." And so, you know what? Repent and turn. This is the only letter where Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about the church there. He's not commending. He's not encouraging. He doesn't even say you got a few people there who are hanging on. He is across the board really strong with this church. It's the strongest message for any of the churches. The funny thing is, there was nothing majorly wrong, at least so they thought. Everything was fine. Everything was good. They were healthy. They were wealthy. They had everything they needed. They were self-sufficient. They were okay. You know, they had fine clothes. They had plenty of money. You know, they, they, had, they, had, they, were, they were known as being home to this great healing center. And he addresses the church where nothing majorly seems terribly wrong, but where their hearts are terribly unright. They lacked passion and zeal for Jesus. They were not passionately pursuing him. But you think, well, what's the big deal, right? How, how is that a bigger deal than in sexual immorality or heresy? You know, if I had to opt for the three, you might think, okay, well, if we opt, if we had three choices between not being passionate for Jesus, having some sexual immorality in our midst, or having heresy, I think most of us would probably pick the first, Right? We say, well, you know what? We'd rather just struggle with some passion. That'd be better. And Jesus says, no, that's not, not better. It's far worse. It makes me sick. And this is the kind of church that makes Jesus want to spit, is what he says. It's really graphic. It's right there. It's the kind of church that makes Jesus want to spit. What's the problem? The problem is that people are not actively aware of their need for God. And they're self-satisfied, self-sufficient, self-righteous. They're self-contented and they don't even realize they have a problem. I think that's not too far off from the church in America today. Self-contented in many ways, doing just fine, nothing majorly wrong. But a self-contented church that is sick needs to know they're sick in order to be truly content. Did you get that? A self-contented church, a self-contented church... It needs to know they're sick in order to be truly content. And so Jesus loves his church too much to let them be content with the way they are. He loves his church to let them settle, to be complacent, to let them be self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency, self-righteousness is one of the biggest dangers to living for Jesus. One of the biggest dangers to living for Jesus. He had the strongest words ever when he was walking this earth in his ministry for who? For the Pharisees. You know what? They They were really good on the outside. He has strong words for this church. And what we're going to see at the beginning is the kind of church that makes Jesus sick. It's the lukewarm church. That's what Jesus is and He's correcting very strongly. Being lukewarm is a big deal to Jesus. The question is, is being lukewarm a big deal to us? Jesus is so serious about that. He's so right about introducing us to people. He, he introduces himself in a different way, in a unique way. He calls himself something that he doesn't refer to in the visions in and the, and the earlier part of Revelation. Every other message to the churches in Revelation. He picks a certain portion of the vision he shared with John in chapter 1, and he communicates that. He doesn't do that here. He actually doesn't refer to any of his titles earlier in the book so far. He calls himself the Amen. You think, well, that's a strange way of referring to yourself. When I, I normally say, "Amen," when I close a prayer. You know, "So be it" or "That's true." You're agreeing that something is true. And so Jesus is saying, "I am the final word. I am the Amen." He also calls himself the faithful, not a faithful one, someone who says, "Amen." The Amen, the one who who says he has the final say, the final word, something sure. He's the faithful. He's not only the amen, he's the faithful. He is the one who is the true witness. There's never been a person who's truer than Jesus Christ. So, why does he refer to himself these three ways? Because they would have doubted hey, I don't understand. Jesus, is this really true? What you're saying about us? We're doing pretty good. We're, we're healthy, we're wealthy, we've got plenty of people coming, we've got some happening um, community programs going on, we have community outreach happening, we're pretty good with giving, all that kind of stuff. We're healthy as a church, and Jesus says, no, you've got to listen to me, you've got to know, know something. I'm, I'm the final say, I'm the final word, I'm the amen, I'm the faithful, I'm, I'm saying this because I'm faithful to you, and a true friend is faithful to tell you the right things. And I'm also a true witness, I'm telling you what is truly true about you, I'm, I'm witnessing truly about who you are, about who God is and who I am. He's the amen, he's the faithful, he's the true witness, there's nothing false about him, no, he's no imitator, he's not a pretender. There's no falsehood, no hint of hypocrisy in any way, he is also the beginning of the creation of God. Now that doesn't mean that God created him. What he means is he is the beginning, the the firstborn of a new creation. He's the beginning of God's new creation. He's, He's the one who started and he's also the one who created everything to begin with and he's also the beginning of a new creation. There's hope in him. He can make people suffering from lukewarmness a new creation. That's good news. He's uniquely qualified in every way to speak to those who are outwardly Christian but who have no inner passion for Jesus. And if you're sitting here today and you, you are struggling, feeling like you haven't had passion for Jesus, don't sit there content with that. Don't be okay with that. You know, so many times in my own life, I found, you know what, I just don't feel it right now. And there will be times in your life as you're walking with God as a believer when you just don't feel it. And those times are meant to say, hey, wait a minute, I actually need to do something about this. I need to respond and see my need for Jesus and respond to him. What Jesus says is not easy to hear, though. Look down your Bibles in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. Now, that's funny, because um, for many years, the people didn't understand what these words meant. He says, I wish you were either cold or hot. Now, and, and in past days, we say, well, cold means that you're far from God. Hot means that you're on fire for God. But that doesn't make sense, because I, he says, I wish you were either cold or hot. So, he can't... Be meaning that, so what in the world is he meaning here? Wish you were cold or hot. Because Jesus certainly doesn't wish that you were cold, you were cold hearted towards him, or that you were passionate as if they were both equally okay. He says, Would that you're either cold or hot? Now the people in Laodicea, they probably very quickly understood what Jesus was talking about. They weren't easy words for them, they weren't happy words. They were hard words to swallow. And I think, if we're honest, all of us can to some degree relate to see to at some point in our lives. They were, at this point, as a church generally, dull and lukewarm to the things of Jesus. They weren't cold or hot. Now, he's not talking about cold meaning dispassionate for God, hot meaning really passionate for Him. He's saying that you're kind of useless. You're neither cold nor hot and it made sense to them. And look in verse 16. He says, so because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And what in the world does he mean? What is it, where is that coming from? For, for us, whenever you read scriptures like this, you have to say, okay, wait a minute. What did it read to the people in that day, in that context? Is there something here that I need to know about that context, that church. And it's helpful to know a little history. And most, most people, their eyes gloss over when you hear history. But there's, there's some parts of history that are really helpful to understand the context here. And so, in this case, it's, it's helpful to understand a little bit about Laodicea. They, they were right, as I mentioned earlier, right by the Lycus River, but it dried up all summer long. So, they didn't have any good water source. And in wintertime, um, the rains would come down from the mountains, and it would wash all these weird minerals and sediments and stuff, and it was undrinkable and make you sick. And so they couldn't drink the water in the winter. And they couldn't drink it in the summer because it wasn't there. They built an aqueduct. Hierapolis was known. They were about six, six miles north of the city. They were famous in the area for their hot springs. Like, I guess it would be like living close to Hot Springs, Arkansas, although a little nicer probably. Am I busting on Arkansas? Sorry. <laughs> They were six miles south of Hierapolis, and Hierapolis was known to have these medicinal waters—these hot waters that people would go to from all around to experience some kind of medicinal properties. There was minerals in the waters; people would feel better. They thought there were healing properties to the waters there in Hierapolis. They were hot. South, actually, east of east of the city of Laodicea it was Colossa, and that's the the church, the city where the. The church of Colossae was located, the letter to Colossians was written to. And they were about 10 miles east of the city. And Colossae was actually known for incredibly fresh, cold, clear, pure water. And this cold, clear, pure water would come down out of these high mountains. And it was the spring water. And it was delicious. And it was refreshing. And it was known to be the best water anywhere. And it was, you know, said to me, refreshing to your soul. So Hierapolis was known to be medicinal. It was hot. And Colossae was known to have cold water. It was refreshing. And so it's in this context that he's speaking to the local city, a local church, and he's saying, hey, you're not like Heriopolis. You don't have hot water that's medicinal, good for, for healing, and you don't have cold water that's good for refreshment, and, and you're like that as a church. You're neither good for medicine and you're neither good for refreshment. You're lukewarm, you're ambivalent, and you're, you're worthless, you're barren. That's what he's saying. You're barren. You're lukewarm. Not good for soaking immedicially, not good for drinking. The town of Hierapolis, they had tried to solve their own problem of bad water. They brought this aqueduct. But, but the thing is, is they, they brought it from a southern city that was near to them, and they brought it from another hot spring, and they brought it over, but by the time it got to them, it was just lukewarm, and it had lots of minerals in it, and you had to let it sit out for a while um, to acclimate, and for some reason, some of the chemicals would go out of it if you let it sit out for a while, and then it was actually okay to drink. It still smelled bad, and you, but it was palatable enough to, to get it down. If you didn't do that, though, and you drank their water and let it see you, you could throw up. and actually says, that's the word that Jesus uses. If, uh, if you're, you're lukewarm... And, and you're neither hot or cold, so I want to throw you up, is what he says. It's, the, the word is not spit. It's actually the word for vomit. That's a really graphic picture, isn't it? Jesus is saying, you're lukewarm, and it makes me sick, and I want to throw up. Being lukewarm is a big deal. I don't know if you ever had well water with a lot of minerals in it. You can smell and taste pretty bad. My in-laws still have that water on the hills in Virginia, and um, I, don't, I don't think they know anymore that it smells bad, but it stinks coming out of the tap. And it's, it's, it tastes awful, and it's got this weird texture to it, and you can't rinse your hands. It's really bizarre. So whenever we go to visit there, we take mineral water and we drink it. But the thing is, they've become acclimated to it and don't really notice it, and they just drink it and use it because it's what they have. And Laodicea had done that with their city water, and the church had done that spiritually. they become acclimated to Complacency, being self-sufficient, self-righteous. It stunk, but they didn't even know it. They were blind. The center of healing for the eyes was blind spiritually. They were self-righteous, self-sufficient. They were really wealthy, but spiritually they were impoverished. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's addressing how they've let the culture around them affect them. They were barren of the life of Jesus, and they were distasteful. And Jesus says, don't be okay with that. I'm going to spit you out if you don't change. I'm going to throw you up and vomit you out. They were sickening like the water in their town, and it made Jesus' stomach turn. It's a serious word. The, The lukewarm church makes Jesus sick. Don't be okay if you find that in your own life. Don't be condemned, but don't be okay with it. The whole church, though, in latency they didn't know they had a problem. They didn't know they were lukewarm, so how could we? I'm trying to think through, how do I tell if I'm, I'm tempted towards lukewarmness in my own life? Started thinking through this week, questions for myself. You know, do I actively pray for, pursue sanctification and spiritual growth? Ask yourself that. Am I, do I actively, regularly find myself praying for, pursuing sanctification and growth in my life? Am I actively seeking to grow in my faithful witness of Jesus to other people? Am I, am I actively pursuing that or just saying I'd like to? What do I get excited about? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. What do I get excited about? Am I more excited about the gifts that God's given me than God himself? Am I more excited about a new job or a new thing or a new house than God? this idea of going to see a movie or reading a book or seeing a band in concert have more appeal to me than Jesus? What do I dream about or long for most in my life? You know, maybe or if you're busy and you don't have time to spend with God regularly, do you miss it? I don't mean do you have this sense of obligation or duty, but do you miss it? Do you miss having fellowship with God? And do you miss it enough to make changes, to make time with God happen? Are you okay with the way things are? These some really tough questions, right? They help diagnose where we're tempted to become self sufficient, where we're tempted to be self righteous, and where we're tempted to be lukewarm. And I think, for honest, all of us are tempted in, in different ways here. You know, where, where do I look for, for joy more? In social media or in God's presence? The church in the latest year had become lukewarm slowly and subtly by giving into the self righteousness, self sufficiency, the smugness, the culture, the wealth, the prosperity. Everything was good. And so Jesus wants them to see that this, this lukewarm church is a self-righteous, self-sufficient church. He tells them, look in verse 17. He says, here's what you say, okay? Church, here's what you say about yourself. Church, you say, I'm rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing. And then he says, here's what, I, here's what you really, really is going on. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What's happening there? They say that we're rich, we're good, we're doing well, we're prosperous, we don't need anything. What what does that mean when they say I don't need anything? It means that they were self-sufficient, they were self-righteous, they they felt like they didn't need anything, they had no need for Jesus really that burned in their hearts that made them, compelled them to go and seek Jesus on a regular basis. What they didn't know, they couldn't see, they were drinking the water, they didn't know that it was bad. He says, don't realize, you don't realize you're wretched. And that's the same word only other time in New Testament uses when Paul says, you know, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? That's the place we need to be, is that we need to see that apart from Jesus, we are wretched and need to be saved from this body of death. And then Paul's answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation. But to get to that place of thanks be to God, you have to see your condition. And so he says, no, you don't realize it. You're wretched. You're pitiable, miserable. They think they're doing good, but you're miserable. You're poor. You're like a beggar. You're blind. This place that purports to help those see, you're blind. This place that's known, that's, that's famous for your luxuriant black wool, you're really naked spiritually. Martin Kittle says the looms of their city could not weave cloth to cover their sins, and righteousness was the white raiment which God demanded and they must get from Christ. Now, now think about it for a second. Jesus is not writing to those people who don't claim to know him, he's writing to a church. He's writing to those who take the name of Jesus. He's he's letting them know the spiritual reality that they need to be aware of. It's possible to be rich, to be prospering, to need nothing from a financial perspective, to have every basic need met, to have clothing and food and shelter and have more than need, but still be wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They had confused the good blessings of God that that are good, and those things can be from God and to be reveled and and say, thank you, Jesus, for those things, but they're never to take our attention away from God. Never to become complacent and comfortable with those things as if though those things are a sign of God's pleasure. Now we can do the reverse too. You may be thinking, I don't struggle with that because I'm not doing well financially. You know what though do you find in yourself the idea that says, you know what? If I if I was just doing well financially, if I wasn't pitiable, if I wasn't poor, if you know I I had more clothes, if I, you know, was feeling if I had physical wellness, then that would be a sign of God's pleasure. Because it's two sides of the same coin. You, you, can, you can think that a sign of God's pleasure is all of this prosperity and wealth and health and clothing. And he says, no, you know, either, either way, it's the same issue. But these people in Laodicea, they were self-sufficient, self-righteous, just like in Hosea 12. God indicts Ephraim, he said in Hosea 12.8, he says, Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I found wealth for myself and all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Don't be confused if there's not major sin in life that you think, hey, I don't really need God very much right now because I'm not really struggling with anything majorly. That might be a sign of a major struggle. They lacked affection, they were proud, self-sufficient, self-righteous, apathetic, complacent. It was unsettling to Jesus. He didn't send his, God didn't send his son to save them for them to be apathetic. Jesus didn't come to the earth and take on ultimate humility for his church to be proud and act like it's no big deal. Jesus didn't combat every conceivable type of temptation only for us to say, oh, that's nice, but you know what? I don't really need you, Jesus, to combat temptation because I'm doing okay. He didn't condemn sin in his flesh and bear the wrath of God that we deserve for us to be self-righteous and act like we don't need it in the first place, as if we don't personally deserve the wrath of God. Now, as believers, we, we no longer deserve the wrath of God, yet there is always an awareness that we need to have that we are solely dependent on God's grace. We're solely dependent on His righteousness, a righteousness that's foreign to us that does not come from us. Jesus died to set us free from slavery to sin and deliver us from darkness and give us life that we might live holy lives and shine forth our lives as, as those have been transformed by His grace with a constant awareness of His grace. And yet the church had been lulled into, yeah, we don't really need this. There's no major sins. It's easy for the deceitfulness of riches, the lust, the eyes, the part of life to creep into our lives. It's, it's easy to become complacent. It's easy to live as, you know, we're comfortable. And maybe, maybe you can't relate at the moment. But I think every one of us needs to consider it. It's easy to drift in complacency and then subtly drift slowly away from God, not caring much about the things of God, become numb to our need for him. You know, I have friends and, and they grew up in a more strict religious background. Maybe you can relate They grew up in a more strict religious background. They felt smothered. They felt trapped. They're really morally good people. They believe in right and wrong. They believe in the golden rule still. They don't want to have to live, though, now by anybody else's rules, and they don't want to live by God's rules. But you know what? They're really polite, my friends. They're really polite. They're really nice. They're friendly people. Their neighbors, those who know them, say they're good people. There's nothing wrong in their lives. They get along with each other. They make good income. They're comfortable. They go out to eat when they want. They stay home when they want. They work hard. They have things relatively easy but they don't feel a need for God. And, and they don't think that it's fair of God if he would send them to hell right now because, you know, they just aren't sure of things and they wanna, they're trying to live a good life. And Jesus calls everyone like that poor. Revelation, lacking any good thing, is lowly, afflicted, destitute, blind. What does Revelation do? Revelation pulls back the curtains of reality, the realities of heaven the realities of our heart. He says, this is the way things really are, and and not to condemn us, but to show us how to change, how to be different, how to respond in light of eternal realities. So what's the answer? Work harder? Is that what Jesus says? Hey, you know what? You're dull. You're complacent. You're lukewarm. So work harder. Does he tell them that? No. Does he say, be more self-sufficient? No. He wants to help the church, so he tells them the answer for a sick church is to see their need and come to Jesus. The answer for a sick church is to see their need and come to Jesus. Look in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy gold, refined by fire, so you may be rich, and white garments may clothe yourself, and shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes. All of these things are answers to what they were saying about themselves. It's just, you're really poor, buy gold from me, buy my riches, and by the way, you only buy those riches by coming to him and acknowledging your need. You can't buy them with anything you do. Get white garments. What are those white garments? Those are the robes of righteousness. They thought they were clothed finely. He says, no, you're naked. You need the white garments that only I can provide, the righteousness that I have, not your own self-righteousness. You try to cover yourself and it's you're really naked. And then he says, you know, you think you're seeing well, but you're not. You you need salve to which your eyes that You're spiritually blind and you need to see. And how how do you get those things? He says, come to me to get those things. Come to me to get the gold, to get the white garments, to clothe yourselves, to anoint your eyes. I love that clothing picture. It's being wrapped up in the righteousness of Christ. So our shame's covered. Jesus is not trying to condemn them. He's trying to convict them so that they are not condemned. Whenever you experience a conviction of Jesus, that is a gift from God. He is not trying to condemn you. He is trying to get you to receive gold refined by fire, white garments, and salve. The only way the poor could get gold would be to acknowledge their need and ask for it freely. We buy gold from Jesus when we humble ourselves, when we see our poverty, confess our desperate need, and wholly depend on his mercy and grace alone. They weren't seeing clear they needed to be healed with the salve that only Jesus could give, nothing they can make. So what happens when a church sees their needs, though, and comes back to Jesus? What, what happens when their church finally wakes up and sees those things, when individuals in the church see those things? Coming back to Jesus, it means that he comes to us with everything. There's something has to happen first. Coming back to Jesus means He comes to us with everything. He brings everything that is truly beneficial that we truly need, so we can find true contentment. But first, they need to repent. Look in verse 19. He says, "Them whom I love, I reprove and discipline." So be zealous and repent. If this is uncomfortable for you today, it's not because I, I like making people feel uncomfortable. But it's if this is uncomfortable for you today, then think that might be God. And I need to listen and think, if that's God potentially convicting me. Why? Because he wants me to repent. Doesn't mean you're not a believer, but he wants me to repent. Why? So I can receive his riches. So I can receive his clothes. So I can receive his ointment for my eyes. Proverbs three eleven, This is really kind of what Jesus is referencing here. He says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Oh, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves, as a father the son in whom He delights. That's what Jesus is saying here. I love you. That's why I'm speaking to you this way. It's not because I hate you. It's not because I'm mad at you. It's actually the reverse. The word for reprove here has the, the meaning of correcting, brings into light, exposing to the darkness, making clear. Jesus is making things clear here because He is. In love with you, he, is, he has died to love you, but he needs to expose some things in us so that we can be clothed. It was my twenties I lived in a, in a house with a well a guy owned the house and I, I moved in with him and it was stinky. The house smelled bad, not just because he was a bachelor, but there was something unusually smelly about this place, and he bathed all the time and wore copious amounts of cologne and by the way, so too much cologne but um, so you're I don't, Sorry, I didn't, if you ever lived around somebody like that where you are so much cologne, you're just overwhelmed. But he wasn't smelly, but the house smelled bad and I couldn't figure it out. So one of the times when he was out for the evening, um, I, can't, I think it was Julie with me. I can't remember who I took with me and I got a black light. You ever, you ever get a black light and you walk around your house when it's dark and you're looking at your house with it? Anybody ever do that before? Don't do it. it it's nasty. It's nasty. The black light... Um, it, it fluoresces, it illuminates every speck of dust, every stain in your house and it will gross you out. But I did this because I'd heard about that and I thought, where's this stink coming from? Because I was living it for months, it was driving me crazy, I was clean, couldn't figure out where the stink was coming from. I walked all around the place and I saw the back of his couch and there's this huge stain on the back of his couch and I found out later that his cat had sprayed it. He had a cat years before, gotten rid of it. it sprayed it, so that was a stinky place. So I sprayed the heck out of the thing with Lysol, cleaned that real good with him gone. And then all over the house, anywhere I saw this fluorescing happen, I would spray with Lysol and clean it up. And, but I went into the kitchen. That was a mistake. Um, not, it wasn't just normal bachelor dirtiness. It was, everything was glowing. It was like the Milky Way galaxy in there. I mean, it, it, was, it was horrific. I, I mean, I'm not kidding. It was, it was glowing all over the place. And I was like, am I in a planetarium or, you know? And all these places were exposed by this, this light, and finally, you know, I couldn't figure out, okay, what in the world? And so I went over to the, the the stove, and I saw the stove was really dirty. I'm like, this doesn't look dirty, but it had all these glowing areas. And then I panned the light up, and the hood above the stove, it, it was like this glowing panel above the stove. And I couldn't figure that out. I'm like, what in the world? How does that pan- that get so dirty? And, and I got closer, and then I started smelling, and then I was revolted because it was the hood that was stinky. That's where the house smell was coming from. It, didn't, it took me months to figure this out. And so... Obviously, I didn't cook too much there. So, eventually, I took the hood down to figure out what was causing the smells and take it apart and clean it. When I took it down, there was about two feet of old bird's nests in that thing and all kinds of uh, different states of decay of birds. And, and, and it smelled horrific. And I about threw up. And so I cleaned it out. Thanks to what the light had exposed, I was able to get rid of what was awful and vomitous, and I was able to truly clean it. So it revealed something really nasty, but it was good, because it let me get it out. And, and we didn't have the problem anymore. And miraculously, he was like, oh man, it smells great in here. <laughs> really? you got to have like dead birds up there for years. But he had become used to it and complacent. He, he, he had become acclimated to it, and he didn't even smell it until it was gone. And, and, you know, God, Jesus exposes the things in our hearts. He shines his light. He shows us what's truly terrible in our hearts, is pride, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. And he says that lukewarmness, that complacency, that apathy, it is nasty, it's rotting. It makes me want to throw up. But here's the good news. If you're zealous, if you repent, there is hope for you. And I have good things in mind for you. I want to give you everything. Now it becomes so serious. Look down at verse 20. This is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And it's probably the most famously misquoted verses in the Bible as well. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone who hears my voice opens the door, I'll come into him, eat with him, and he with me. Now, this verse is often used of, of personal evangelism that Jesus is knocking at your door and wants you to become a believer. And it's actually not what this is about. He's writing to a church. People who were already Christians, who are apathetic. There was a practice in Laodicea that the Romans would institute that they had to, when Roman preconsuls or Roman officials would come into town, they would have to open the door to them and let them in, and they hated it, and because it was happening all the time. There were crossroads, and they, they hated that, and Jesus is saying, well, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to force my way in, but here's the problem. I am knocking at the door of your church, and I'm not present in your church. Now, if you are a church and you're hearing that Jesus is on the outside knocking, that's bad news. Because if he's on the outside knocking, that means he's not on the inside with you. And so, what he's saying is, if you hear my voice, open the door, church. If anybody in the church opens the door and hears my voice, I'm going to use that to bring revival. I'm going to come in and eat with him, have fellowship with him, and he with me. And so... He's addressing this church as apathetic and proud and smug. They don't think they need anything, and because of that, they put him out of the church. They don't need Jesus anymore. And he says, "I'm standing here knocking. Let me in." I'm not actually in your church gatherings. They're gathering together as Christians, but the presence of Jesus is to be nowhere found. This one author wrote, "They professed to know Jesus, but he had no place in their assembly. He's knocking, calling the many to saving response. So you may enter in. If anybody opens the door, he's going to enter that church. So that's helpful if you are in a church or if you feel like, hey, you know what? I feel like I'm apathetic. People around me are apathetic. Great. Respond. And there's a great promise. He'll come and have a fellowship with you. And you know what? Through you, you can encourage others in the church as well. He'll fellowship and eat and dine with the church as well. And here's the incredible promise. I want you to hear this as we get ready to close here. There are some astounding rewards. When I said he brings everything to those who come to him, he comes with everything. Look in verse 20, 21, he, it's astounding. Not only in verse 20, he says he'll come in and eat you with you and have fellowship with you, this, this close personal fellowship. He talks about promises and rewards in verse 21 to the one who conquers or, or has victory by, by responding, by being zealous, for not, not being lukewarm, by repenting. He says, I will grant him, this is, I don't know how else to say, it's astounding, it's breathtaking, it's crazy. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne This is Jesus, the king of all the universe, who has earned the right to take up his throne. He has conquered every power. He has defeated our sins. He's carried our sins. He's taken God's wrath. He in every way has proven himself to be the righteous king of all. He has been given the throne above all thrones. And really, all of Revelation is all about that, how Jesus is now on the throne. It might seem like everybody else is ruling and reigning in the world, but Jesus is on the throne. And he says something crazy here. He says, I will grant the one who responds and conquers in this way to sit with me on my throne? I I can't even fathom that. So, Picture God the Father, Jesus the Son, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling over all. Everything. Right? Because that's what Jesus, how Jesus describes himself. He rules and reigns over everything, every person, every power. That's his authority, his throne. And he says, the one who is victorious in this way, I will grant him or her to sit with me on my throne. That's astounding. We don't deserve that. But he says, I'm going to grant that because I, I love you and I can't wait for you to respond so I can welcome you to rule and reign with me. What grace. What mercy. You know, I used to want to be invited to the White House, you know, to go to the Oval Office and have some kind of unique privilege to be close to somebody with that much power and authority. I and mean, I think if you, if you were, you'd probably brag about your influence. Or maybe, maybe you'd like to go to the United Nations and have a seat there. But in Christ, he grants us his authority, which is far above every other authority. He says he'll grant us authority to sit with him, to participate together with him in his rule, his reign, his majesty, to have access to all the inner workings of the ruler of all. Well, what more could you want? More what more influence? What powerful, more strong friend could you want? What riches compare to the promise that we have in him? Gold that is refined by fire. White robes of Righteousness. Eyes that see clearly. Just like Jesus conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne, he says, I want to bring you into that. That's a promise. That's a wonderful privilege. And so Jesus here he's correcting his church is because he loves his church. And he wants to bring them everything good. And then he says in verse 22, look in your Bibles, he was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that mean? It means we need to listen and hear to apply. Maybe, maybe you're not there. Maybe you do have times that are good and, and regularly enjoying Jesus, but don't become complacent there. Have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. Respond to God and say, God, would you help me be constantly aware of my need for you? Lord, would you help me continually see and not be okay with the areas of my life that are acceptable sins? I mentioned before there's a book called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. It's a, it's a great little book because it's it's all about the things that we, we act like a respectable self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, pride. Those things that we kind of all live with on a low-level basis. And he says, no, those, those aren't okay. Don't be complacent with that. How can we respond to hearing this and say, you know what, Jesus, help me be attuned. Help me humble myself. Help me not be self-sufficient. Lord, help me not look to other things to satisfy. Help me, God, not think that I'm okay because you provide in all these ways. But, Lord, help me realize that you are gracious and good. And so, Lord, let that cause me to be grateful to you and respond to you in worship. Pray that God enables us to see by his grace and see our need for him. Renounce seeking the wealth the world has offers our satisfaction, seeking the riches of Christ instead. Set aside filthy rags, self-righteousness, and pride. See that you're naked. Wrap yourself in his righteous robes. Ask God to open up our eyes to see him. We may not be blind. To see our sins, see our need for him, and receive the healing power that only he can provide, the healing salve. Think about a way to practically respond for each and every one of us this week I'm going to ask you to do something if you're a part of this church and I know that you probably bristle against somebody asking actually to do something specific but I want you to think about responding in a specific way this week we've we've just finished up the 7th message to the churches of Revelation so we have 7 days in a week so one of the ways that we can apply is to starting tomorrow morning read the first message to the first church in Revelation, it's just a very short paragraph it's like 8 verses, it's not a big deal Read the very first letter. I can't remember. Was it Ephesus, I think, was the first one? Go back tomorrow morning, read that first letter, and say, okay, Lord, help me not forget what you've spoken to at the churches and all these churches. Help me hear, Lord, would you help me apply this? Then Tuesday, do the same thing with the next letter. And then Wednesday, the third. Thursday, the fourth. You get the idea? Friday, the fifth one. Saturday, the sixth. Next Sunday morning, you'll finish with this message in preparation, your heart prepared prior to the message. Because we don't, we don't just want to be hearers. We want to apply what he has. And, and these are messages that he is, a, he is wanting all of his churches to hear. Every one of us needs to hear something from each and every one of these churches in some way. So let's do that together. Can we do that? All right, excellent. Well, why don't we pray and then I know everybody's eager and smelling food. Uh, we'll, I'll give some instructions after we pray and I'll, I'll, I'll dismiss everybody. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word that pierces our hearts, that brings conviction. Lord, may we hate being lukewarm. Lord, may, may we set aside any complacency. Lord, may we respond with zeal. May we repent of any any self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, pride. God, may we see our need for you, then rejoice that you long to satisfy our every need. May we find ourselves satisfied in you and you alone. God, help us to apply. Lord, help us see your mercy and grace and rejoice. See all the wondrous riches we have in you. And Lord, give us hope in you alone, I pray. Lord, would you change us as a church? Would you make us so that as a church we are characterized by zeal and passion for you? God, would you bring a revival to our hearts, I pray, by your Spirit, and even now move on us by your Holy Spirit, I pray. We ask you to do these things because only you can do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.